Chapter Nine of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Nine. The Thing Knight Wanted. When Doctor Torrance, who was to give her away, and the Marchese de Morello who was to be Knight's best man, had been introduced to Annesley, she laughed at the stupid scare which had chilled her heart for a moment. If Knight had remained with her after his friends finished their call, she might have confessed to him how she had fancied in the tall, dark young man a likeness to one of the dreaded watchers. Until Knight spoke their names, she had feared that the pair looking in at the door were there to spy. That one, at all events, was disguised, cleverly, yet not cleverly enough to hide his identity. But Knight said good-bye, and went away with his friends, giving the girl no chance for further talk with him. They did not meet again, until, with the Countess de Santiago, Annesley arrived at the obscure church chosen for the marriage ceremony. There Dr. Torrance awaited them outside the door, and took charge of the bride, while the Countess found her way in alone, and Annesley saw through the mist of confused emotion her night of love and mystery awaiting at the altar. During the ceremony that followed, he made his responses firmly, his eyes calling so clearly to hers, that she answered with an almost hypnotized gaze. His look seemed to seal the promise of his words. In spite of all that was strange and secret and unsatisfying about him, she had no regrets. Love was worth everything, and she could but believe that he loved her. This strong conviction went with the girl to the vestry, and made it easier to turn away when his name, his real name, which she, though his wife, was not to know, was recorded by him in the book. They parted from Torrance, Morello and the Countess, at the church door, an arrangement which delighted Annesley. In the haste of making plans, she and Knight had forgotten to discuss what they were to do after the wedding and before their departure, but Knight had found time to decide the matter. "'These people were the best material I could get a hold of at a moment's notice,' he remarked coolly, when he and Annesley were in the motor-car he had hired for the journey to Devonshire. "'We've used them before, because we needed them. Now we don't need them any longer. It seems to me that a newly married couple ought to keep only dear friends around them, or no one. Later we can repay these three for the favour they've done us. If you call it a favour, meanwhile we'll forget them.' Knight had neglected no detail which could make for Annesley's comfort, or save her from any embarrassment arising from the hurried wedding. Her luggage had been packed by a maid in the hotel, and, all but the dressing-bag and a small box made for an automobile, sent ahead by rail to Devonshire. She and Knight were to travel in the comfortable limousine which would protect them against weather. It did not matter, Knight said, how long they were on the way. At Exeter they would visit some good agency in search of a lady's maid. Annesley said that she did not need a maid to wait on her, since she had been accustomed not only to taking care of herself, but Mrs. Ellsworth. Knight, however, insisted that his wife must be looked after by a competent woman. It was the right thing, but his idea was that, in the circumstances, it would be pleasanter to have a country girl than a sharp, London-bred woman or a Parisienne. In Exeter, an ideal person was obtainable, a Devonshire girl who had been trained to a maid's duties, as the agent boasted, by a lady of title. She had accompanied the Marchioness, 
to France, and had had lessons in cans from a hairdresser, masseuse, and manicurist. Now her mistress was dead, and Parker was in search of another place. She was a gentle, sweet-looking girl, and though she asked for wages higher than Mrs. Ellsworth had paid her companion, Knight pronounced them reasonable. She was directed to go by train to the Knoll Hotel at Sidmouth, where a suite had been engaged by telegram for Mr. and Mrs. Nelton Smith and maid, and to have all the luggage unpacked before their arrival. Flung thus into intimate association with a man, almost a stranger, Annesley had been afraid in the midst of her happiness. She felt as a young Christian maiden, a prisoner of Nero's day, might have felt if told she was to be flung to a lion miraculously subdued by the influence of Christianity. Such a maiden could not have been quite sure whether the story were true or a fable, whether the lion would destroy her with a blow or crouch at her feet. But Annesley's lion neither struck nor crouched. He stood by her side as a protector. Knight seemed more and more appropriate as a name for him. Though there were roughness and crudenesses in his manner and choice of words, all he did and said made Annesley sure that she had been right in her first impression. Not a cultured gentleman like Archdeacon Smith, or Annesley's dead father, and the few men who had come near in her early childhood before her home fell to pieces. He was a gentleman at heart, she told herself, and in all essentials. It struck her as beautiful, and even pathetic, rather than contemptible, that he should humbly wish to learn of her the small refinements he had missed in the past that mysterious past, which mattered less and less to Annesley, as the present became dear and vital. "'I've knocked about a lot all over the world,' he explained in a casual way, during a talk they had had on the night of their marriage, at the first stopping-place to which the motor brought them. "'My mother died when I was a small boy, died in a terrible way I don't want to talk about, and losing her broke up my father and me for a while. He never got over it as long as he lived.' and I never will as long as I live. The way my father died was almost as tragic as my mother's death, he went on after a tense moment of remembering. I was only a boy even then, and ever since the knocking about process has been going on. I haven't seen much of the best side of life, but I've wanted it. That was why, for one reason, you made such an appeal to me at first sight. You were as plucky and generous as any bohemian, though I could see you were a delicate, inexperienced girl, brought up under a glass like the orchid you look, and are. I'm used to making up my mind in a hurry. I've had to. So it didn't take me many minutes to realize that if I could get you to link up with me, I should have the thing I'd been looking for. Well, by the biggest stroke of luck, I've got you, sooner than I could have dared to hope. And now I don't want to make you afraid of me. I know my faults and failings but I don't know how to put them right and be the sort of man a girl like you can be proud of. It's up to you to show me the way. Whenever you see me going wrong, you're to tell me. That's what I want. Turn me into a gentleman. When Annesley tenderly reassured him with loving flatteries, he only laughed and caught her up in his arms. Like a prince am I, he echoed. Well, I've got princely blood in my veins, through my mother. But there are pauper princes, and in the pauper business, the gilding gets rubbed off. I trust you to gild my battered corners. No good trying to tell me I'm gold all through, because I know better. But when you've made me shine on the outside, 
I'll keep the surface bright. Annesley, who did not like the persistent way in which he spoke of himself as a black sheep, who at best could be whitened and trained not to disgrace the fold, yet it piqued her interest. Books said that women had weaknesses for men who were not good, and she supposed that she was like the rest. He was so dear and chivalrous that certain defiant hints as to his lack of virtue vaguely added to the spice of mystery which decorated the background of the picture, the vivid picture of the stranger night. When they had been for three days in the best suite at the Knoll Hotel, and had made several short excursions with the motor, he asked the girl if she felt like getting acquainted with her cousins. She did not protest, as she had at first. Already she knew her knight well enough to be assured that when he resolved to do a thing it was practically done. She had had chances to realize his force of character, in little ways as well as big ones, and she understood that he was bent on scraping acquaintance with the lord and lady Annesley Seaton. Had he not decided upon Sidmouth the instant she mentioned their ownership of a place in the neighborhood? She had been certain that he would not neglect the opportunity created. "'How are we to set about it?' was all she said. "'Oh, Valley House is a show-place, I suppose you know,' replied Knight. "'I've looked it up in the local guide-book. It's open to the public three days a week. Anyone with a shilling to spare can see the ancestral portraits and treasures and the equally ancestral rooms of your distinguished family. Does that interest you?' "'Yes, but I'm a distant relation, as well as a poor one,' Annesley reminded him with her old humility. "'You're not poor now, and blood is thicker than water, when it's in a golden cup. "'It's Lord and Lady Annesley Seaton's turn to play the poor relations. "'It seems they're stony. "'Even the shillings the public pay to see the place are an object to them.' "'Oh, I am sorry,' exclaimed Annesley. "'That's generous, seeing they never bothered themselves about you, "'when they had plenty of shillings and you had none.' "'I don't suppose they knew there was a me.' Lord Annesley Seaton must have known if his wife didn't know. But we'll let that pass. I was thinking we might go to the house on one of the public days, with the man who wrote the local guide-book. I've made his acquaintance through writing him a note, complimenting him on his work and his knowledge of history. He answered like a shot with thanks for the appreciation, and said if he could help me he'd be delighted. He's the editor of a newspaper in Torquay. If we invite him to lunch here at the Knoll, he'll fall over himself to accept. Then we'll be able to kill two birds with one stone. He'll tell us things about the heirlooms at the Valley House we shouldn't be able to find without his help, or a lot of dreary drudgery. And also he'll put a paragraph about us in his newspaper, which he'll send to your cousins. Now, isn't that a combination of brilliant ideas? Yes, laughed Annesley. "'But why should you take so much trouble? "'And how can you tell that the editor's paragraph "'would make the Annesley Setons want to know us?' "'As for the paragraph, you may put your faith in me. "'As for the trouble, nothing's too much to launch my wife "'on the top wave of society, where she has every right to be. "'I want Mrs. Nelson Smith to have her chance to shine. "'Money would do the trick sooner or later, "'but I want it to be done sooner.' Besides, I have a feeling I should like us to get where we want to be, without the noisy splash money-bags make when new rich candidates for society are launched. Your people will see excellent reasons why their late poor relation is worth cultivating. 
but trust them to save their faces by keeping their real motive secret with a touch of sarcasm i seem to hear them going about among their friends whom they'll invite to meet us saying how charming and unspoilt you are though you've got more money than you know what to do with i with the protesting pronoun annesley disclaimed all ownership of her husband's fortune whatever it might be it is the same thing you and i are one whatever is mine is yours i don't swear to make you a regular unfailing allowance worthy of the new position you are going to have because you see i do business with several countries and my income's erratic i'm never sure to the day when it will come or how much it will be but there's nothing you want which you can't buy remember that and when we begin life in london you shall have a standing account at as many shops as you like annesley made no objection to knight's plan for luring the journalist into his trap which was a harmless one according to his prophecy mr milton savage of the turquay weekly messenger accepted the invitation from his correspondent and came to luncheon on the day when the public were free to view valley house he was a small man with a big head and eyes which glinted large behind convex spectacles annesley was charming to him not only in the wish to please knight but because she was kind-hearted and had intense sympathy for suppressed people mr savage was grateful and admiring and drank in every word knight dropped as if carelessly about the relationship to lord annesley seaton knight allowed himself to be pumped concerning it and also his wife's parentage letting fall with apparent inadvertence bits of information regarding himself his travels his adventures and the fortune he had picked up i'm the exception he said to the proverb that a rolling stone gathers no moss i've gathered all i want or know what to do with and now i am married i mean to take a rest i haven't decided yet where or how but it will be somewhere in england we're looking for a house in london and later we might rent one in the country too annesley admired his cleverness in touching the goal but somehow these smart hints disturbed rather than amused her knight's complexity was a puzzle to her she could not understand despite his explanations why these fireworks of dexterity were worth while knight was a brave figure of romance she did not want her hero turned into an intriguer no matter how innocent his motive after luncheon they drove five or six miles in the motor to valley house a place of jacobean times there was an italian garden and an english garden containing every flower plant and herb mentioned by shakespeare each garden had a distant view of the sea darkly framed by lebanon cedars and immense beeches while the house itself not large as show-houses go was perfect of its kind with carved stone mantels elaborate oak panelling and staircases leaded windows and treasures of portraits armour ancient books and bric-a-brac which would have remade the family fortune if all had not been heirlooms there was not a picture on the walls nor an old piece of jewellery in the many locked glass cabinets of which mr milton savage could not tell the history as he guided the nelson smiths through the hall and corridors and rooms with marvellous moulded ceilings the liveried servant told off to show the crowd over the house had but a superficial knowledge of its riches compared with the lore of the journalist and the editor of the turquay weekly messenger became inconveniently popular with the public he was not blind to the compliment however 
and, motoring into Turquay at the end of the afternoon with his host and hostesses, expressed himself delighted with his visit. That night was his night for going to press, but he found time to write the paragraph which Nelson Smith expected. Next morning a copy of the messenger, with a page marked, arrived at the Knoll Hotel, and another, also marked, went to Valley House. The bride and bridegroom were at breakfast when the paper came. There were also three letters, all for Knight, the first which either had received since their marriage. Knight cut open the envelope slowly, one after the other, and made no comment. Annesley could not help wondering if the Countess had written, for an involuntary glance had made her sure that one of Knight's letters was from a woman. A purple envelope with a purple monogram, and a blob of purple wax sealed with a crown. He read all three, put them back into their envelopes, rose, dropped them into the fire, watched them burn to ashes, and quietly returned to his seat. Then, as if really interested, he tore the wrapping off the turquoise messenger. "'Now we shall see ourselves in print,' he said, and a moment later was reading to Annesley an account of the two most interesting guests the Knoll Hotel has entertained this season. Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith were described with enthusiasm. They were young and handsome. He was immensely rich. She was highly connected, as well as beautiful, having been a Miss Annesley Grail, related on her mother's side to the Earl of Annesley Seton. The modesty of the young couple was so great, however, that though the bridegroom was a millionaire, well known in his adopted country, America, and the bride quite closely linked with his lordship's family, they had refused to make their presence in the neighbourhood known to the earl and lady. Instead, they had visited Valley House with a crowd of tourists on a public day, expressing the opinion to a representative of the messenger that it would be intrusive to present themselves to Lord and Lady Annesley Seton. They were spending their honeymoon in Devonshire, and might find, during their motor tours, a suitable country place to buy or rent. In any case, they would look for a house in which to settle on their return to London. "'Good for Milton Savage,' laughed Knight. "'Now we'll lie low, and see what'll happen.' Annesley thought that nothing would happen, but she was wrong. The next morning a note came by hand for Mrs. Nelson Smith, brought by a footman on a bicycle. The note was from Lady Annesley Seaton. End of chapter 9